You are listening to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, and this episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Now, by this point, I think we all know that you can use Squarespace to create an amazing-looking website, you can make a portfolio, you can make whatever you want with it. But did you know that you can use Squarespace to sell anything? You can make it your storefront, and it'll do everything. It'll manage your inventory, process customer orders, print packing slips, and also all sorts of little wrinkles that might come up, like coupons or multiple ways to ship things. All this comes along with award-winning customer service. You got a lot of options if you want to make a terrible website. But if you want to create an exceptional website, one that stands out, one that works for everyone, including mobile devices, Squarespace is by far your easiest option. And for a limited time, if you go to squarespace.com slash Jeff Rubin and enter the promo code PILEDRIVER, we're going back, a little bit of a flashback to two weeks ago promo code, just bear with me, squarespace.com slash Jeff Rubin. Promo code PILEDRIVER, you will get a free 14-day trial and 10% off anything you might eventually purchase. So, check that out. And, without further ado, here's the episode. Everybody. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today I am on the old Skype-a-phone with Cole Stryker. Welcome to the show, Cole. Thanks, Jeff. Cole has written two books. Cole, can you tell us about those books and uh, what they're about? Sure. So the first book, it's called Epic Win for Anonymous, <clears throat> and it deals with a group of hacktivists that call themselves anonymous um, and where they came from, what they're about, and more broadly, it deals with the um, mimetic culture that um, came from and, and, and why memes are important to the group and, and what memes are and, and, and all that stuff. Um, the second book is more political. It deals with the value of anonymity, the political value, and um, the social value. And it's sort of a defense of anonymity, and it, it tries to express why we should fight um, for the ability to speak our minds anonymously online. And I go back and I trace the history of anonymity through the ages uh, in order to make that case. So right off the bat, we're pronouncing it meme? Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, it um, comes from an old Greek word, which means to imitate. But yeah, it's pronounced meme. And like meme, I know um, it's kind of been talked about a lot, how it has its origins in Richard Dawkins' writing. But it, it's kind of evolved to have a new meaning, right? Right, I would say in the um, in the late '90s and early 2000s, uh, it, it began to be co-opted by journalists referring to basically pop culture from the internet. So, any sort of grassroots DIY uh, weird internet culture started being known as an, as internet memes. And I think. You know, just to set up some ground rules, I think when we use the word meme today, that's probably what we're referring to. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's. I don't correct people when people refer to something they saw on I Can Has Cheeseburger as a meme when I could, t- you know, technically say, oh, well, that's in the classically Dawkinsian sense, uh, not, not a meme. Um, you yeah. would be the most popular guy at the party <laughs> if you kept, <laughs> right, if you kept yeah. correcting people it's about that. In my, my pet entry um, with these terms. So let's go back a little to before you wrote the book. What is your, or these books, what is your history with the internet? Like, what's your earliest memory of getting online? Oh, gosh. So I was kind of a late bloomer with the internet. Um, The first memory, I think, I was at a friend's house, and it was like four 11- or 12-year-old boys looking up boobs.com. And how old are you now? So what year was it then? Is what I'm I am about. 28, so this would have been, gosh, um, let's see, I was 11, so that would be 96, 97? And like so many of us, pornography, the gateway to the internet. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, for me, it wasn't even porn. It was just like Victoria's Secret website. Yeah, yeah. And was that via AOL? Yeah. Yeah. I remember I had, um, I'm a little bit, I'm two years older than you, and I had Prodigy. And I remember going online with Prodigy, um, which was like a pre AOL AOL kind of. Um, 
you couldn't pick your screen name. You were assigned seven random letters and numbers, and right. I still remember them to this day. And out of curiosity, I Googled my prodigy, uh, you know, my prodigy name, and I found it on a list of email addresses to spam. Oh, no. So did you find any old, like, conversations or writing that you had done? No, I was really, really young. I have, like, memories of, like, talking about um, Mutagen Man from the Ninja Turtles. Just talking about, like, Ninja Turtle action figures. So I must have been, like, my family, we, we, we had the internet pretty early. Or we had Prodigy pretty early anyway, and we had BBS systems and that kind of thing. Um, but I, I was very, very young, so I only have, like, vague recollections of it. But I do remember it kind of being in my life for as long as I can remember. Do you remember a part of your life where you weren't online, like a, a pre-internet uh, existence? Yeah, I mean, for me, the getting the internet was like discovering Narnia. I mean, like, I, it's very clearly divided into pre-internet and post-internet. Um, like, I was, I was a bored kid. I had video games, um, but that was pretty strictly limited by my parents. And I, when I was 12, we moved out to the middle of nowhere. I had one neighbor and, and no, no friends, really. Um, the rest was cornfields. So the internet for me was like my link to the outside world. And you're probably among the, the last generation of people that will remember a life before the internet, but still be able to, um, you know, speak internet fluently. Like, you know, you, you can uh, talk about the internet, uh, you know, like you're a native, even though you, you remember a time before it. And uh, people like that aren't being born anymore. You know, it's well, just kind of a fact of life now. We're like the people in 1984 that were alive before the, uh, the takeover. This is referring to... The book, 1984. The, remember the, before the regime. I remember, so in 1984, in the book, there's people that remember what life was like before yeah. the dystopian world surrounded them. Right. That's, that, but the reverse of that. It was, it was a dark age in your mind. Well, I mean, for, for some kids, like, they probably wouldn't even notice the difference in, the, in life. But for me, it was such a dramatic difference. Um, just my personality and my my geographic location um, it was a big deal. Why was that? Well, it was I mean I so I I got the internet right around the time that um, Napster started to really blow up. Um, so just as an example, but that's a few years later after you're searching for boobs.com. That's true. So my, so my family got their first computer when I was 14. Um, so you're right. This is like three years later. Um, but so I, I didn't have like regular internet access until like 98, 99. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, Napster and, um, you know, just, just basically discovering all this new culture that I never would have ever been exposed to other than what I might happen to catch on not even cable television. We didn't have cable. So you know, just just being able to discover interesting bands and and like the the Onion was really formative, um, the early Onion website, and and you know just like I, we had a dial-up connection and every day I would get home from uh, school and just load up like twenty tabs and then wait for them to load, go grab a snack and then come back in fifteen minutes and they would all be loaded, and then I would read them. And it was better that way, right? Right. Of course, they weren't tabs in those days, just win individual windows. Yeah, inside that AOL window, you have like little <laughs> windows. Right. What's the, what is your first memory of seeing what we now call a meme, like some piece of internet junk that you, you had to show your friends and you got shown by some other friend? So when I went to college, I had instant access to broadband. Um, so it was like a deluge of stuff. But before that... I guess hamster dance would have been the first thing. Oh yeah, and which was that was like a page of animated gifs of hamsters, and there was a little song, that a little MIDI maybe that went in the background. Well, there was a little uh, audio file of um, that song from Disney's Robin Hood that the rooster sings, sped up really fast. I kind of remember. Um, I mean, video-wise, for me, it's probably it, uh, all your bass. All your bass yeah. belong to us. I yeah. watched that recently, and you know that, that thing's like it's over a decade old now. And I was like, "Wow, it really still holds up." Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the early Fark stuff before Reddit, before Dig, before meme culture had really taken hold. You had these little pockets of internet culture, like something awful in Fark, um, where you could go and they, people would have these 
Photoshop contests in the thread. And that was like very fertile ground for interesting. At the time, like most people didn't have Photoshop the way everybody has a pirated copy of Photoshop now. So it was kind of limited into what you could, you know, who could participate. Those small pockets of this subculture have exploded and we're seeing it all over the internet now to the point where friggin' like Nike is paying people to do this for them. Right. I'm surprised that you didn't have the internet until you were a little older because in the books, you know, um, you speak with such authority and you obviously know so much about the internet. I kind of assumed it was something that you just grew up with. You must have had a lot of catching up to do when you were 14. I definitely did. And, and I also had catching up to do even while I was researching the book. Like, I, 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 I guess, I, I mean, I, that's very flattering that you say I speak with authority. And I guess the explanation is that I, you know, sought out people who were there when I wasn't there. You know, people who were very influential on the web like the guy who made Fark, for instance. Um, you know, I'm fascinated with these guys and, and girls. Uh, you know, I idolized them. They kind of created the culture that I consider to be mine. Um, you know, these, these guys are like my uh, Woodstock-type crowd. Do you remember the first time that you heard about 4chan? Um, yeah, I... I'm pretty sure it was so I was still in college around this time. It was probably 2006. And I had this buddy and we would all constantly send each other hilarious links all the time uh on Instant Messenger. And this had been going on for a while um and like we would send each other links from rotten.com, which I don't know if you remember that was a Sure. Yeah, I mean there's something about being like a teenage and even college age guy specifically i think that like yeah. makes you want to find the grossest stuff out there and uh yeah so my my friend found this weird anime photo um which is uh can i swear on this podcast you can definitely swear on this podcast. okay so the image is called shitting dick nipples Perfect. I mean, and, you can describe the most grotesque imagery yeah. in vivid detail. I only wish we could show it to people, too. Well, your viewers can Google it. Um, it's basically exactly what it sounds like. It's a, an, uh, a manga female figure um, who has penises for nipples, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they themselves are defecating. Um, I always found that much funnier uh, to send to people and to surprise people with than, like, gore or dead people like i always like kind of the weird uh just the weird particularly like manga and hentai i think is always always a little more surprising well for me it's it's all about like just the mind-boggling nature that there is not just some person but an entire community of people that are sincerely creating the stuff and it's good like i don't i'm not gonna google it at the moment i'll google it when we're done maybe I probably will Google it when we're done. All right, I'll do it now. But uh, I bet it's good art. Like, these are talented artists. Well, yeah. I mean, you can tell that, like, some serious thought and effort was put into it. Right, hours right, right. hours of, like, fine-tuning the lines and, and shading it. And, you know, you can find gigs upon gigs of this stuff now. You know, all kinds of, like, weird furry photos. And, and especially with communities like Reddit, which are kind of tailor-made to like find it um, and, and you like harnessing the power of the crowd to dig up a lot of the weirdness. But back then it was like, if you could find something like that, it was, it, it gave you some sort of social clout online. Like you were, you were kind of this weird tastemaker. Yeah. I'll find you 10 things weirder than that picture by the time we're done with this interview now, you know, just like <laughs> go to Google. Like you can do it on Google. You don't even, oh, yeah. I mean, you don't even need like some weird hole in the ground to find it. That, that practice of finding weird stuff has blown up to be so mainstream that it's, it's like almost hard to not find something weird. So how did this lead? I kind of threw you off track to you discovering 4chan. Right. So this link happened to be from 4chan, uh, uh, this image that, my friend sent me over AOL and some messenger and basically yeah, once you see one thing from 4chan and you start poking around the site, you kind of realize like, wow, there's something interesting going on here. I mean, even me as someone who was already for the time pretty immersed in weird internet, um, you know, cause it's for one thing, it's, it's odd in that, that none of the content stays on the site 
for longer than a few minutes. So can you, I think a lot of people, probably people that are listening to podcasts, even specifically this podcast, have heard of 4chan, but I think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions out there and people don't totally understand what it is. Could you try, and I know you wrote a whole book about it, but try just to succinctly describe what it is? Yeah, sure. So 4chan is an image board, which is basically a message board that encourages uh, or, or mandates that you post an image with each post. And um, it is a completely dynamic community in that the content is constantly moving up and down the page so that the stuff that's getting replied to is sort of floating to the top of the page. Basically, in the same way that Reddit works, where you have upvotes dictating how long content stays on the front page. On 4chan, it's just replies. So the more chatter that's happening around a specific post, the longer it's going to hang around. And, and, and even that, and everything dies after a few hours. Um, so it's this constant churn of people trying to gross each other out, shock each other, make each other laugh. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I don't think it's a, a conservative estimate to say um, that it's probably 85 to 90% young males that are hanging out there. And how many people just total? Like how many, how many people go to 4chan every month? I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, but around the time the book that the book came out, and this was uh, two years ago, uh, or no, like a year and a half ago, um, it was at like 12.5 million monthly. So that's a lot. I think it's safe to call it something approaching mainstream culture at this point. What was your reaction the first time you saw 4chan? Well, I was confused at first. I didn't, like, it, it's kind of, there's no documentation really. You, I mean, there, there's an FAQ, but um, you can't just jump right in. You, you kind of have to, there's this meme on 4chan that says lurk, lurk more, meaning before you start posting, you should hang out and kind of understand the manners and mores of a community. So... I, I lurked, and I, I just sort of watched uh, threads blow up, and I, I watched threads die, and I, I watched um, memes being formed before my eyes, um, and and just getting an appreciation for how viral content lives and dies by how interesting it is. And then around this time, you, you would also see, uh, like the occasional news report about 4chan was happening. Um, so like talking about the internet hate machine, uh, the hysterical Fox report about the, the bomb threat that happened in, I think 2007, I want to say. So 4chan does kind of have a reputation, uh, for some of its members, the people on the site, it's weird to even say members because it's an anonymous board, so it's not like you get like a card or you even have to register an account, right? Right. I mean, everyone's by default anonymous, and it's very much encouraged that you don't use your real name. And the whole point is this is a place where we can all be as weird as we want to be, um, however that manifests itself, and have the focus be specifically on the content and not on the person. Who's, who's providing the content. So what was the mainstream news like Fox saying about it? Um, so there was a cyberbullying case, and there have been many since, uh, where a bunch of trolls from 4chan decided they were going to harass somebody. And, um, and there, there was a, a bomb threat element also mixed in. and Just, just for spice. <laughs> right, right. And uh, Fox did this like expose on Anonymous, and this was really the first mainstream mention of Anonymous. And uh, it was kind of a silly, like 2020 style. Do you know what your kids are up to? Are your kids safe? Kind of thing. And it it, it like positioned Anonymous as this merciless group of psychopaths, when in reality, it's more likely that they're mostly just sort of kids goofing off and, and killing time by causing trouble. And just to keep nailing down this vocabulary, what exactly, what do you mean when you say anonymous? As I said, everyone on 4chan is by default anonymous, and they call each other anonymous. Um, and around 2007, anonymous, you know, up until then had been mostly just trolls and pranksters, and they would mostly hang out on 4chan, but occasionally go outside of the 4chan community 
and they would harass people uh, on online gaming um, platforms or like they would go after some dumb white supremacist radio host or like a scam artist and they just for fun they would harass people and and make them look stupid um, around 2007 that all changed when Anonymous decided to start going after the Church of Scientology and that's when they developed this very political anti-authority anti-censorship bent which had long been um, a property of the ha online hacker culture um, Anonymous kind of took that on and they became what I call capital A Anonymous which is the like guy who wears a Guy Fox masks and, and shows up at Occupy Wall Street like that's a very different animal from the troll who's just harassing teen girls on uh, on YouTube. But because Anonymous and just 4chan is this amorphous blob and there's no membership process, uh, is the moral code consistent from member to member or uh, amongst the organization? If Organization doesn't even seem like the right word. It's as inconsistent as can possibly be. Um, I mean, you have this distinction between the early anonymous and the later anonymous and the earlier trolls kind of hate the new ones. They, I mean, there's a word that they use for them called moral fag, which means that they're basically like internet white knights. They, they're trying to accomplish something good. And the earlier trolls who are just complete nihilists say this is lame. And we should mention that um, the language is obviously very vulgar. We're talking about how the point is to shock, shock themselves. And it's just like become codified at this point. And you talk a lot in the book and you talk to, experts like um you know about if it's appropriate to use that language or if it's not i think that is beyond the scope of the show so for the purpose of the show we're just <laughs> going to throw out the word moral fag and not comment on it yeah i mean i could summarize it in one sentence if uh, you, let's like, just real quick <laughs> sure like they they use the you know this this regrettable uh epithet typically used uh to identify homosexuals uh in a negative way um, as just a shorthand for someone who likes something a lot. So, like, they call, like, people who have, you know, who prefer Nintendo over PlayStation, like, oh, you're a Nintendo fag, or you're a, I like Pepsi, I'm a Pepsi fag. You know, it's, it's, it's almost, like, tossed off without any thought or, or connection to any kind of uh, slur. Um, but, you know, you're right. Like, I, I take great pains in the book and spend pages talking about the etymology of it. And I talk to, like, experts at universities who study racial uh, behavior, like race relations online and stuff. So you were explaining how um, the, old tr the older trolls don't like the newer trolls and their moral crusade. Right. Well, Anonymous basically exploded in popularity when they started going after Scientology. They started getting reports on the news on a regular basis um and uh all the old trolls are basically like wait a minute we're supposed to be the internet hate machine where you know we don't have any causes we're not like a political activist group we're we're just goofing off so um there's there's there's, there's some animosity and, and it's not like that ever went away this the trolls are still very active I mean, a lot of them probably don't even use the name Anonymous anymore because they think it's been corrupted. By your estimate, how many members of Anonymous are actually effective hackers? I would say the most liberal estimate would be 5%. Which is like, how, what, what kind of army are we talking about? I mean, you know, I know it's not. So like, I, how I many people are we really talking about here? I describe Anonymous as being a few geniuses surrounded by a legion of, of uh, cheerleaders. Um, or a few geniuses few geniuses surrounded by a legion of idiots. Um, basically, you have a couple people who really know what they're doing, who can pull off some serious hacks. Incidentally, most of those people are now in jail. Um, but and you have thousands of, of people, you know, speaking very loudly about the issues and showing up for protests and causing a stir. And so you, you, you have this, like, megaphone effect where... Um, a handful of people are, are able to generate enough actual attacks in order to support all of the cheerleading that goes on. And we talked about some of their targets, Scientology, scam artists. Uh, in, in your mind, are these people that deserve it? 
Um, I think Scientology is a particularly interesting case because of the way that Anonymous, um, well, they, they defanged this, the church in a way, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Uh, so in the early days of the Internet, there was a group of uh, people who, who had an anonymous community, and someone posted some internal documents from the Church of Scientology. And basically the church was like, this will not do, and they got Interpol to confiscate all the hard drives of the guy who was running this community. And it was like, that. basically the hacker community was just like, this is the worst, we have to stop this, this is our internet, we don't want this kind of censorship, uh, we have to fight this. But the problem was that the Church of Scientology had so much money to pour into their legal arm that they would just sue anyone who would criticize them online, basically. And... Um, so what Anonymous did effectively was they overloaded Scientology's ability to sue anyone that's been that's like talking crap because they can't go after every 14-year-old who's copy-pasting sensitive documents that have been leaked. Um, so th in my mind, this is one of the most powerful things that Anonymous has been able to accomplish, and it didn't even really require any hacking. And you talked uh, in the book to the person who probably made, I think, the most famous anonymous moment, the most iconic uh, anonymous moment, was when they released that video with the computer, doing right. voiceover and talking and directly addressing the Church of Scientology. And you talked to the person that made that video in the book. Yeah. How did you track him down? So the, the guy who made that video is not... He's, he's revealed his identity, and he's appeared on the news, and he lives in Boston, Um He's <laughs> really taking the romance out of it. He lives yeah, in Boston. He, 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 he actually runs like an SEO company. So he's not this like shadowy mastermind. He's just a random guy that thought, wouldn't it be cool if we went after the Church of Scientology? And something magical just sort of happened where it became a, a rallying cry for a, <laughs> a piece of a generation anyway. My favorite anonymous story I think kind of the one where you, you feel the most sense of justice was served is the H.B. Gary tale, which you recount in yeah. the book. Can you explain what happened there? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll try to summarize it. But it's basically there was this guy who was working for a security firm, and he decided he was going to reveal the identities of Anonymous in order to generate a bunch of press for his security company. And this is a major security company that deals with the NSA, the government, right. very, very serious, top-level stuff. Right. And Anonymous was like kind of going viral at the time, so he thought, if I can unmask some of these major players, I'm going to win a bunch of contracts with the government and, and other security companies. Um, it'll be great for my business. So... He decides he's going to infiltrate Anonymous, and basically Anonymous figured it out and hacked into his company's site by tricking one of the employees to hand over the passwords. His security company's site. Right. So, th yeah, this is a company that's been tasked with, like, very sensitive national security data, for instance. And they're duped in the same way that, like, middle-aged housewives are duped into handing over their Amazon accounts. Um, by like Nigerian scammers, so very humiliating, obviously. And it it did a couple things. It it showed that a the security industry probably isn't equipped to cope with some of the the real cyber threats that are out there. If a bunch of fourteen year olds can make them look so stupid. But what's interesting about that hack, and it's the same with uh, the Sarah Palin email hack where her emails were leaked, is it's not a technical thing. Like, you can explain what they did to anyone. You need no computer knowledge to do it. It's, it's more of a social hack, and no amount of computer security or technology could prevent, um, you know, if you, if you leave the key under the doormat and someone finds the key, like, it doesn't matter how impressive the lock is, kind of. Right. I mean, the, the human element is usually the weakest link in the chain. Um, you know, they have all the fancy cryptography in the world, but if they can convince someone into sharing the password, if they can spoof their identity to like to make people think that they're a coworker or something, um, yeah, I mean, this is a lot of the hacks that Anonymous is able to pull off, and and even like most um, hacks that are done from credit card thieves and identity thieves that operate out of say Eastern Europe, 
they're they're using the same kind of tactics. So the kind of illusion or the fantasy of like the 1994 movie Hackers, where there's someone with a laptop in a in a payphone booth with just a matrix screen of text flying by, something uh, not not necessarily what's going on here. Right. I mean, I, that that stuff do, does happen in the world, but yeah, I mean, anonymous. There, there was some stuff they they pulled off some like SQL injections, which is considered very low level hacking. Um, a lot of it was DDoS direct uh, uh, denial of service attacks, which is something that you can just download a piece of software and click a button, and you're participating in the hack. So it's not you don't have to be a genius programmer to do it. So what were we saying before that? I, I kind of got us off track. Oh, so listening. I said it. It revealed two things. The first being how inept the security industry was, not across the board, but just just to just as a case study, and then. B was that it turned out th- this hack revealed that H.B. Gary was t- putting together a plan to besmirch the name of um, a-, a journalist uh, who had uh, named Glenn Greenwald, who was pro WikiLeaks, um, and basically they wanted to tarnish his reputation um, so that. This would uh, like he basically it was revealed that Bank of America wanted to contract H.B. Gary to ruin the reputation of this critic of um, Bank of America because he was promoting WikiLeaks. And Anonymous was like, "Holy crap! We just randomly hacked into this one company, and it turns out there's all this corruption. What like what does this say about the the government and about the security and intelligence industries as a whole?" It's impossible to know because unless you access every database, but it, it's definitely, um, you know, that that was a, a case of anonymous pulling something off that like we kind of owe them. We we should be thankful that they did that. In your mind, was that company asking for it by kind of poking the bear with a stick? Yeah, I mean, I think he totally, he really underestimated their abilities. Um, it's obvious that he thought that he had it in the bag and that he was going to expose these guys and uh it turned out not to be the case at all and is he around anymore is he still like working for the government what became of this guy he is he's on twitter um he i mean obviously a lot of egg on his face yeah who would hire this guy like that is the that is as bad a job as you can possibly do running a security company. I mean, I wouldn't doubt that he'll be able to find additional work because there are so many people. I mean, the security industry, to a large degree, is based on fear. So you have a lot of people who are worried about groups like Anonymous uh, and how do I keep myself safe. Who better to ask than someone who was victimized himself? Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Did you talk to anyone while you were researching the book that was on the receiving end of Anonymous Justice? I actually did for the second book, um, Hacking the Future. I talked to a guy who runs a security company in Florida, and they're not quite as closely tied, to my knowledge, with government work as H.B. Gary was. But, I mean, this this is a brilliant guy. Like he, he was very frank with me, and he talked me through what had happened. And basically his mistake, as as is the mistake of so many people, was that he was using the same password for multiple email accounts. So Anonymous had hacked a separate security company, revealed a bunch of um, passwords and email addresses, so they just tried the same password on his Gmail account. It turned out to work. They got into his Gmail, and they were able to seriously disrupt his business for a while. Um, And they, they wanted to blackmail him and try to get him to send them money and... Uh, he didn't. He didn't do it. But you know, obviously, lessons to be learned. No matter how smart you are in the security industry. Now, that guy, the people blackmailing him, are not necessarily, as far as we know, the people involved in, for instance, the H.B. Gary thing or any other anonymous activity. Yeah, like I said before, the ethical framework varies from person to person. I mean, like, they could just be two completely different groups of people that we're talking about here. Oh yeah, I mean. And this is one thing that frustrates me about the media coverage of Anonymous. When when I see on the Huffington Post that Anonymous has announced that they're going to bring down Facebook or something like that, I'm thinking, well, okay, so maybe some 13-year-old created a little YouTube video declaring, we are Anonymous, we're going to bring down Facebook. 
who knows how many people are behind that and whether or not any of them have any skill. So it's, uh, I, I like to call Anonymous a memocracy in that they're, the, the operations that they do, their decisions to go after a specific target, operate like memes and that the ones that are able to achieve virality within the group are the ones that succeed. Oh, that's so interesting. So there's no like hierarchy or leadership. There's nobody calling the shots saying like, okay, now we're going to go after so-and-so. It works just like viral media and that like these ideas are sort of bubbling up on places used to be 4chan. They don't really hang out on 4chan anymore. Um, it's mostly like IRC and, and other uh, more underground communities. And, uh, and, you know, someone will suggest we should go after this person and then everyone will shoot it down so it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and then, you know, something else happens and everybody gets behind it. So. Do you think that memocracy is more or less working for them as an organizational principle? Well, it has its strengths and weaknesses. Like, obviously, the weakness is that it's very hard to corral people around any single cause. But the strength is that, um, I mean, it's it, they're so flexible. Like, they can they can do something really quickly and there's no like paperwork to do or there's no channel of like approval that they have to go through if something if a bunch of people decide like okay we're going to do this they just do it you mentioned that the media will often cite a specific video and just doesn't totally understand the organizational structure what are some other misconceptions about 4chan and anonymous that are out there ah uh, well one i guess one misconception about 4chan is that it's all like gross out weirdness um there's actually 40 or so different boards on 4chan and one of those is called random and random is the one that gets all the attention because it's just completely random content there's no focus to it whatsoever so it, it it's an expression of like the extreme fringe of the human imagination um, but you also have a thread that's devoted to, say, fitness. <laughs> so very, obviously very different culture there. And you have another thread that's devoted to origami uh, and another that's devoted to photography. Why wouldn't an origami enthusiast go to origami.org or wherever, you know, these conversations typically take place, free of tentacle porn? Well, I've, I've, that was a question that I asked a few people. I was also curious about it. And basically what people told me is that they like how fast 4chan moves. And they like its focus on anonymity so that uh, on a normal message board, people tend to develop cults of personality, especially on boards that reward using some sort of upvote, downvote mechanism. Um, so uh, you, you wouldn't have like, the, there's no such thing as a 4chan power user or, or someone who holds a lot of clout within 4chan because everyone's anonymous. So it's very democratic in that way. It's it's very meritocratic in that way. So the, like the, you're only as good as the mo the last thing you posted, and your people only care about you because of what you're posting. So you know it. It not to say that there isn't drama on 4chan, but it enables people to just focus specifically on the thing that they're interested in and not have any sort of politics. Do you think that's why 4chan is such a good breeding ground? for memes, and it is kind of ground zero for almost every major meme um, that hits the mainstream radar. Uh, is it because it's that insane system where it's so hard to get noticed that if you do get noticed, you must be good? It's such a high bar to clear. Right. So the average post only lives on the front page for something like 10 seconds unless it gets replied to. So you, you have a, a – like I, I describe it in the book like a river – and you have you have uh, people placing um, like you know how little kids will take little sail like newspaper sailboats out into the water. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So imagine a bunch of kids a along a river and they put their their boat in the water and it just immediately starts sailing off down this stream. Um, so that's kind of like what happens when you post on 4chan. As soon as you post it, it just immediately starts moving down the page, not in real time in front of your eyes, but on the back end. And when someone replies to that, it's like they're taking that, uh, that newspaper boat and picking it up out of the water, running up to the, the mouth of the river and putting it back at, uh, up, up front. So, 
I mean, it's kind of a stretch of an analogy, but um, the idea is that the content is moving so quickly that only the stuff that people are interested in replying to has a chance in hell of, of getting noticed. Um, I think the anonymity also plays into this in that people are more willing to post stuff that they wouldn't want to be associated with under their real name. So you have just a lot of bizarre um, or, or just random type type of things that don't really have any institutionalized venue for other than a place like 4chan. Like, if I had some hilarious image that has no context or, or like anything related to it, I can't just randomly post that somewhere. It, it doesn't really make sense if it's not a part of the conversation. With 4chan, it's, it's like that kind of thing is invited where they want you to be as random as possible. Do you ever post on 4chan yourself? When I was writing the book I did, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't really spent much time on 4chan in the last like year and a half since the book came out. But do you, do you ever go back and just like, let's see what's going on in Slash B and just pull it up for a sec? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess like maybe once a, once a month or once every couple of months I do. Um, the, the, the problem with 4chan, I mean, it's, it's the strength and the problem simultaneously, is that... It's so time-consuming to get to anything interesting. Like, it, like I say, there's so much content on the site that you have to wave, wade through piles of stupid garbage that's completely bland and uninteresting in order to get to that one nugget. But of, the nuggets are the f freshest nuggets online. That's true. So what I like to do, actually, is there is a 4chan subreddit on reddit.com, mm -hmm. and it, people will take those nuggets and post them to the 4chan subreddit. So it's like it's kind of a way to skim the cream off the top of 4chan and consume only the choicest uh, interesting stuff. Now, because Anonymous kind of has this reputation of being rapscallions, were you at all worried that you were poking the bear when you were writing this book? Yeah, I, I was, and I... I knew that they were going to target me to some degree when the book came out, and that turned out to be true. Um, they immediately posted my home address online and tried to quote unquote dox me, which means um, revealing all my like my social security, my address, my phone, my family relationships, all that stuff. Um, they didn't get my social or bank account or anything like that. They they did get my address and my um, uh, like they were able to find my family on Facebook and they harassed them and but honestly it was such a their attention span is usually so short and unless you're someone who's go who's going to give them like a real emotional payoff like it, what they wanted was for me to go on YouTube and start crying and beg them to stop and obviously that's not going to happen um, so th they lost interest in me pretty quickly. Should I be worried? I'm putting this up. Are you dragging me into this mess, Cole? <laughs> you might get a few like comments, uh, in, you know, on on the site. 4chan is so mainstream at this point, and like everybody's talking about them, especially in regards to anonymous. That like when my book came out, that it was obviously the first book. Um, continues to be the only book on 4chan. And uh, that, so that was kind of a big deal. Now it's, it's like so mainstream. Everybody has heard of 4chan. It's not a secret anymore. And your second book deals a lot with anonymity. And it seems like anonymity is part of what makes 4chan work. Is anonymity, boy, anonymity under threat? Yeah, it is. I, I, I make this case in the book that, that you have these two directions that the internet is being pulled in. On the one side, you've got corporations like Facebook and Google who are colluding with state actors um, in order to A, spy, and B, monetize your identity. And do we know that for sure? Like, we got a smoking gun on that. That's happening. Well, yeah. I mean, on the cover of Wired uh, a few months back, you, you have this massive new NSA monitoring facility built out in the desert in Utah that's just dedicated to keeping tabs on what everyone's up to, basically. So how, and is that via social media, via my Facebook? I don't know if anybody really knows the ins and outs of it, but that, I would assume so, yeah. Oh my God, I feel so bad for the poor FBI agent that has to go through my Twitter feed.
Yeah, I mean, it. It at sometimes it, it feels kind of silly because I think about like what I don't have anything to hide, but that's. I mean, the argument that I make is that that's because I, I am so privileged to live in a place where privacy is valued and and where I'm not going to get thrown in you know in jail for expressing some kind of political dissent. So, how is Facebook and or Google specifically colluding with state agents? Um, well, I mean, they obviously have to reveal data when they've been subpoenaed, for instance. And any company can... So there's a case going on right now, actually, where Chevron, the massive multinational energy company, um, has subpoenaed... I don't think it's Facebook. I think it's Google and... I want to say Microsoft and Yahoo, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, a couple of big tech companies... And they're saying we want the email and browsing histories of these specific people for the last nine years because they're involved in the lawsuit and they have to divulge that information. So it's, I mean, there's activist groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, for instance, that are trying to fight this kind of stuff. And it, you know, on the one hand, it it seems like kind of silly to to worry about privacy because it's like it. You know, we live in America, we're safe, but on the other hand, like, you, no one knows what 10 years down the line is going to look like. So that, that's, uh, I like to think of the book as sort of a warning call. What are you worried about specifically? Well, um, I, I, I worry about just the not being able to speak my mind without having my name attached to it. So we saw this at a very low level with what's been colloquially called the NIM Wars, N-Y-M as in pseudonym. Um, The NIM Wars was a name given to a series of conflicts between Facebook and Google who were trying to convince uh, their users that they needed to divulge their real names to use their platform. I mean, Facebook does this. Google reneged for Google Plus and they don't require it. But, uh, like, if Facebook finds out that you're using a name that's not your own, um, they, will, they will delete your account or ban you or whatever. But isn't that kind of like a feature of Facebook? I think one of the things people like about it or what you expect when you go is that all the pages you visit are going to be real people and they're not going to be for Darth Vader, like they are on Twitter sometimes or, or right. what have you. And that's true, and I like Facebook for that reason. Like, I, I, I think Facebook should have the right to organize their their walled garden as they see fit. Um, I think the problem is when we try to make the whole internet look like Facebook. Is Facebook's platform, which you see lots of websites uh, asking or requiring you to sign with Facebook, is that, is that a threat? Is that a problem? Um, I, think it's, I think it's a threat in the sense that it slowly like, inoculates us uh, against things that should be more shocking. I don't use Facebook Connect because... Like it's, I, th- I feel like it's bad enough that Facebook tracks everything I do when I'm on Facebook. I don't need them tracking me everywhere else that I go on the web. So I don't do a lot of like sign in with Facebook to leave a comment type stuff. I mean, the, the examples that I give are, for instance, uh, the quote-unquote driver's licenses for the web program, where you have researchers at Microsoft that are saying, we needed an authentication wall for the entire Internet so that you log in using your real name, when you want to get online, just like you would if you wanted to get on Facebook. And everything that you say and do is then traceable back to your real-world identity. And that's Microsoft saying that, or Microsoft's working on that. Yeah, and politicians and various people and, and working for certain startups. It's, it's uh, I mean, obviously a lot of this is driven by good intentions. Like, they're trying to limit things like, cyber terrorism and child pornography and cyber bullying and and illegal data trade and identity theft and obviously things that everyone would like to see less of um but you know i i think the problem is that we have to look at the internet as something that exists outside of the u.s and even though it might be okay if everything i say and do online is traceable back to mining because i'm protected by the several amendments it's not the case in Iran. You know, if you're a if you're a gay teenager in Iran and you want to find support online, 
you're not going to do it under your real name. Um, so I, th I think that it's worth considering that our laws and our, our policy affect people outside of the U.S. It seems like it'd be very difficult to implement because, I don't know, couldn't I route my internet through Canada? Yeah, so... It's, it's almost like guns where, like, uh, the people that were really going to take advantage of it anyway, they can still get around it, even if we make guns illegal. Right. Like, I, I use that metaphor a lot. I think it's even more convincing when you're talking about identity than when you're talking about guns. Um, that, that if we outlaw anonymity, only bad guys are going to use anonymity. Like, they'll figure out a way. This is what hackers do. They break systems, and they figure out ways to route around barriers. So... Yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken with hackers, and I'm actually working on a third book right now to dive a little bit deeper into this specific subject um, called The Deep Web, which I spent a chapter focusing on for, for hacking the future, and now I'm, I'm working on a whole book about it. Um, basically, The Deep Web refers to these anonymous communication channels uh, such as Tor and Freenet, where you can find things like child porn and guns and drugs and terrorists and hitmen and um you know i <laughs> i like to think of it kind of like as moss eisley from star wars uh just this like place where all these creeps are hanging out doing their creepy stuff and that is something you can access through traditional internet no you have to well for let's say for instance how would i access it very specifically <laughs> give me a it's easy. I mean, it takes five minutes. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You go to Tor.org and download uh, the Tor bundle. Tor is a piece of software that stands for the Onion Router, which re refers to the way that it obfuscates your Internet behavior by wrapping it in layer onion-like layers. Um, and it's not a perfect foolproof system, but it's what people use to access sites like the Silk Road, which is a growing marketplace for illegal drugs that you can... You know, it's basically eBay for drugs. You can buy from a seller and there's reputation so that you know you're not going to get ripped off. And then a week later, an envelope full of LSD tablets shows up in your mailbox. There is no way to ask this without sounding like an old fogey, but do younger people really place less value on their online privacy? This is a hard question to answer because on the one hand, you have... So older people tend to be pretty conscious of their privacy because they the internet is new to them so like the idea of someone being able to being able to monitor them is kind of like unsettling um whereas young people they're so used to it it's not necessarily uh like top of mind is that a bad thing yes and it's it's slowly changing though i would say you have groups like anonymous and uh you know, so earlier I mentioned that the internet was getting pulled in two directions, and I said on one side was Facebook and Google and the government. On the other side, I didn't get to get to that point yet. Is groups like Anonymous, WikiLeaks, Tor, uh, the hacker communities, um, various activists like the Electronic Frontier Foundation? All of these people are sort of working together to free the information online, um, and and they're they're seeking different ends it's it's not very it's not a cohesive group but the general theme is we don't want the internet to be controlled we want it to be free and open and uncensored and we want people to have privacy so the, they're making great headway i think the anti sopa pippa movement of last year was a pretty promising development in getting a bunch of younger people interested in um privacy and censorship concerns as it related to copyright content. But once SOPA kind of became a big deal, um, it made a lot of headlines, and then the bill didn't pass or didn't become a thing. I don't know how law works. Didn't they just come up with something worse and, like, sneak that in and at that point, you know, that one doesn't become a thing? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing this now, and there's starting to, like, there's a resurgence of anti... Well, CISPA is, right now, uh, CISPA is similar legislation... And uh, you know, various countries around the world, or the EU has ACTA. Um, all these acronyms are. You know, I, I would like to see a more cohesive, free the internet movement that that doesn't specifically rally around a particular piece of legislation like SOPA PIPA. And there's a couple people that are trying to pull this off, like 
Alexis Ohanian, one of the founders of Reddit, has a, an advocacy group that he started, and he's been traveling around the U.S. on a bus trying to build awareness um, about internet governance issues. I gotta tell you, Cole, I love the internet, and I plan on using it forever, and you can pry it from my... From your carpal tunnel rented fi- riddled fingers? Yeah, so what can we do about this? Is there, is there anything we can do about this? Is it just something we gotta watch happen? Well, I think that it, it like anonymity has kind of a branding problem where you immediately think of like the stock photo image of the guy wearing an old timey burglar mask emerging from a computer monitor. Um, like that's not what anonymity looks like. Anonymity is activists, it's um, comedians who are speaking out against the social establishment, it's um, transgender people, it's people struggling with their sexuality in some way or another, it's people who are questioning their faith. Like It's anyone that wants to express something, but they want to be able to control who has access to that information. Um, so I think that, I think that part of the, the challenge is to reframe the identity issue and make it more about um, how do we keep ourselves safe but rather, how do we how do we keep our our ability to uh, share information and express ourselves safe? Um, and I I think the answer is education rather than regulation. I don't I don't trust the same government that's building massive NSA monitoring facilities in the desert to effectively regulate the internet to maintain my freedom. Um, I think it's more about educating individuals and, and showing them the value of privacy, and that it's not that, that like that I've done nothing wrong, so I have nothing to hide. Argument is short-sighted and, and wrong-headed. Why is that? Well, I think that part of it neglects to recognize that we don't live in a perfect world, and as such, there are the, you know the freedom that you have, to, you know, being able to say I've done nothing wrong might be might look different than what someone living in China can say, you know, they might speak out against a dictator and they feel like they've done nothing wrong, but their society that they live in or the government that they live under feels like they've done something wrong. So, you know, I mean, there was a time when you couldn't, where people were tarred and feathered for, for, for speaking out against slavery, for instance. I mean, even today, the gay rights issue is pretty politicized. And in certain parts of the country, you know, you'd get a black eye in a bar for saying that gay people should have the right to marry, for instance. So, like, the I've done nothing wrong, I have nothing to hide, you know, you know the argument neglects the, the reality that... Um, and it assumes a perfectly progressive world, basically. I think the reason it's so important to talk about these things is because without free speech, and today that means free speech on the internet, we can't talk about any other issues. So it's at the very bottom. We need it to deal with anything else. And yet, as a political issue, it's still somewhat under the radar. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like the internet is the greatest tool we have for spreading freedom and democracy and, and progressive social reform um, because... Of the way, uh, uh, speak because people can speak their minds in, anonymously. Um, you know, it, it, that that's a new thing in a lot of places in the world. Another problem that I talk about is I call it the permanence problem, where okay, so maybe you've done nothing wrong, so you have nothing to hide, but and then maybe you trust the Obama administration, maybe you trust Larry and Sergey at Google, but what about Larry and Sergey's successor? and their successor's successor. Like, what's it going to look like 15 down, years down the line? They still have all this information that they've gathered, and maybe they're not doing anything shady with it right now, but who's to say what the world is, is going to look like? So I think it's important, like, now, while, while things are safe, and while these issues might look like uh, a, a lot of, like, fuss over nothing, I think it's important to consider them while they still are, um, sort of fantasy problems. 
I love talking about this stuff. I love hearing about this stuff. I love reading about this stuff. Let's plug your books one more time for those that missed the title. How can others read more about these issues? Sure. So they're they're available on Amazon. They're on ebook, audiobook. Um, you can find them in most Barnes and Nobles. I mean, it's they're they're books. <laughs> um, the first one's called Epic Win for Anonymous, and the second one is called Hacking the Future. You can also just go to colestriker.com and see links to those Amazon pages. I really enjoyed talking to you. I really enjoyed reading the books. Check them out, everyone. Thanks so much for uh, talking tonight, Cole. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Pretty important issues. Pretty cool dude. I'm glad we got to have that conversation. Thanks again, Cole. The Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show comes out every Tuesday except the first Tuesday of the month, which means we are off next week. February, pretty short month, but between talking about WWE, uh, getting an MFA in game design and internet anonymity, I'd say we made the most of it. I feel that way. I hope you do too. So we are off next week. It is the first week of March, but there will, on collegehumor.com, be a new episode of Bleep Blue. And let me give you a little preview. It's going to be about the Power Rangers. So that's going to be a lot of fun. I will keep you posted on all of those things. Uh, you can follow me if you are the NSA and you are interested in any illicit activities I am up to on Twitter, where I am at Jeff Rubin Show, on Tumblr, where it is JeffRubinJeffRubin.com, on my Facebook fan page, or at YouTube.com slash JeffRubinJeffRubin. Any feedback, any feedback, or maybe you have a suggestion for a guest for a future episode, uh, you can tweet at me, you can send me a Facebook message, or you can email me where I am Jeff Rubin at jeffrubinshow.com. Getting a lot of good suggestions lately. I think some of them are going to come to fruition in March. I will call them out when we get there. In the meantime, uh, new Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show in two weeks. New Bleep Bloop next week. I'll see you there. <laughs>